Welcome to Redemption Hill on this beautiful spring morning in November. It's good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And this morning we are kicking off a new series. Uh, We have spent the past year in the book of Acts. And then this fall we worked proposition by proposition through the Nicene Creed, talking about the essential doctrines really of the Christian faith and where they find their root in Scripture. And then this week, we're kicking off more of a seasonal series. We're going, to be, we're going to be celebrating the season of Advent. And everyone comes to Advent in this time of the year with different experiences and backgrounds. Um, Advent is one of those seasons that's very often celebrated, uh, very often acknowledged, and very rarely ever really understood. Uh, in my own life, in my own childhood, I have vivid memories of Advent being the time of the year when at night we would read a portion of the Christmas story and sometimes there was a box and in that box there were all the figures of the nativity and we would read a story and we'd get out a piece of the little nativity scene and we'd put it out so that every night throughout the season of Advent we'd read and pull out a different piece. And the last night of Advent on Christmas Eve we would read the birth of Christ and pull out baby Jesus and the picture was complete. And at some point along the way in my childhood, that Advent uh, process got replaced by an Advent calendar that had little doors on it, and you would open up the little door, and behind it was whatever you would read, but there was also a piece of chocolate. Um, you, you grew up with that too, Seth? All right. So Advent became a time where at least we got a piece of chocolate every single night as we would read the story, and um, that's what Advent really was. Um, and everybody's got different experiences with the season of Advent, but the thing that we can, most of us can all at least acknowledge and recognize is that we're aware of it, but we really don't understand it. Or we may have celebrated it or had some kind of tradition with it, but we really didn't understand where it came from and the role that it serves in the life of the church. And and, and partly that's not our fault. The actual history of Advent is a little bit vague, but I'm going to give you the the best history that that the scholars have come up with and that the most consensus revolves around. Okay, you ready? Advent can be traced back, in particular, to a guy named Martin. Uh, Not Martin Luther, uh, but a Martin that was the son of a Roman officer. Uh, Martin was born in Hungary, and his dad was an officer in the Roman army, and Martin grew up like his father to become a cavalry, a mounted officer in the Roman army. Um, And while he was an adult on duty for the empire, he was in Gaul, or what is now France, and he was doing his normal duties as a Roman officer, and he came across a a man at that time who was a beggar. Um, So if you think 4th century beggar, it's a little different than first, 21st century beggar. Uh, fourth century beggar was probably far more destitute than any of us have probably ever seen unless you've been overseas somewhere. And here's Martin on his huge Roman steed in his military outfit wearing the deep crimson robe and cape that a Roman officer would wear. And he comes across this lowly beggar on the street. And historians say that at that time, Martin recognized the man and did something uncharacteristic. He actually got off of his horse and he cut his scarlet cape, which signified a Roman officer. I mean, this was part of their glory as an officer. Everyone knew that Rome was in town, that Rome was present, that Rome was ruling when the officers were around because they wore these deep scarlet robes. And Martin got off of his horse and he took that scarlet cape and he cut it in half. And he wrapped half of that cape around that beggar. Uh, And he kept the other half for himself because that still signified who he was and, and what he did, but he had cut it. So that night, historians say Martin went to sleep and he had a dream. And in his dream, he saw a man who was wrapped in the very cloak that he had cut. It wasn't the beggar, it was a different man. And the man in his dream asked him, he said, Martin, do you know who I am? And Martin, in his dream, said, yes, I know who you are. You're Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We don't know much more about the dream, but historians say the next day, Martin went to his commanding officer, 
And he said, I will no longer serve the emperor of Rome or the Roman Empire. I now serve and give my entire life to a new king. You can take what is due to me as an officer and give it to somebody else. As great as that sounded, it got Martin a lifetime in Roman prison under the crime of treason and cowardice. He was imprisoned for that act. For, it was considered treason. And so he spent a great percentage of his life from that point forward in a Roman prison. But as the empire shifted and developed and new people came into power, Martin was eventually pardoned of that crime of cowardice, which is crazy just to read that he was in prison like that for cowardice. Um, but he was in prison for that, and eventually he was pardoned. And upon his pardon, he became a monk or a hermit. He, he went to a life of seclusion out in the wilderness. He would only come out at certain times to go into different towns to preach. And history says that when Martin would come out and he would preach in these towns, people loved him. And over a period of time, as he would come out to preach and people would catch word of it, thousands would show up to hear him. And they would constantly ask him to serve an appointment in the church in the city. But Martin would never do it. He wanted to go back to his seclusion. He wanted to go back to being a hermit. But he would come out on occasion and preach. Well, people kept trying for years to get Martin to serve in the church, and he just wouldn't do it. He wanted to be there in prayer alone in the woods to come out and then to pray and to preach for people and then to leave. And so the city was just struggling and trying to figure out what to do. And, and a wise businessman in the city came up with a plan. It's the wise businessmen that often have plans. He came up with a plan. He said, I know how we, can, how we can fix this. See, the bishop had just died, and there was no bishop ruling over the area at the time. So this businessman came up with a plan. He went out to see Martin in his hermitage where he was living in the woods. And he said, Martin, my wife is dying. She's very sick. She's extremely ill. She doesn't have much time left. Would you please come and pray for her? Would you please come and comfort her? Would you please come and encourage her? And Martin said, absolutely. I will come with you and do that. And as this man was leading Martin back to the city, when he got back into town, the city was waiting for him. The city ambushed him and basically made him the bishop by force for the most part. Um, but at some point, history records that he, re he relinquished his, his, his desire and he became the bishop of the area. And as he was serving as bishop, uh, he began to notice just the, 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 the deep and abiding um, ignorance of the people uh, of the things of God towards God, towards the gospel, um, and, and how the people would just drift to and fro throughout the seasons of the year and the church and the church celebrations that they would still celebrate in that time of the year. So one of the things that history records that Martin did as the bishop of this area was that in the season before Christmas time, and about and approximately about forty days before Christmas, Martin instituted what was what could be considered a mini Lent. He recognized that the people would just kind of blindly go through the church celebrations in the church year, not really understanding what was happening, and they needed to prepare their hearts and prepare their minds for, for what they were celebrating. So he instituted this, this mini Lent, or this season of Advent, that's a season of preparation, um, a season of, of introspection, but a season of celebration, looking forward the need that we need that's met in the person and work of Christ, moving into the Christmas celebration of his birth. And so Martin instituted the Advent season, which is really a mini Lent. And for 40 days, he had his church fast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 40 days before Christmas, leading up to the Christmas celebration. And throughout history, from that point forward, the church didn't always observe the fasts, but the priests would continue to observe the fast, and they would actually tell the princes, don't bother me during the season of Lent. 
Keep your business to yourself because the, the princes would often grab the priests to come and advise them, to pray for them, to give them counsel. They said, don't bother us during this time. This is a time of preparation uh, for the Christmas season. And so this was the, the mood, really, that the season of Advent was birthed in. It's a, it's a time of preparation, a time of, of longing, a time of recognizing our need and longing and looking for the fulfillment that we find in the person and work of Christ. It's really a mini Lent. And so we actually have this man, Martin, to thank for Lent, I mean for Advent. Um, and Martin would go on, if you have a Catholic background, to become a saint. We're talking about Saint Martin, the patron saint of beggars. And as I read and studied this week, I found that he's like other patrons. I don't have a Catholic background, but like every saint is the patron saint of a lot of things, like a whole list of things. And Martin is the patron saint of beggars, and amongst other things, the patron saint of geese. So we have the, the patron saint of geese to thank for this preparatory season uh, that we call Advent. But somewhere along the line, after Martin uh, put the season of Advent into the church and the church began to adopt the practice of preparing for the Christmas season, uh, somewhere along the line, we can't put our finger on the date that it became institutionalized, but the church began to, to, to revolve in this season of preparation around the themes of, of hope and peace and love and joy. And those are the traditional themes of Advent, the, the looking for and the longing for the fulfillment of hope and peace and love and joy that is found ultimately in the person and, and work of Christ. And so these are the, the historic themes of the season of Advent. These are the themes that we're going to go over in the next four weeks. And so whatever our Advent experience is, what, whatever background you have that you're, that you're bringing into this time, I want us to all at least acknowledge that as we come into this season, we all have a sense of our, our need. Advent is a season that's marked by longing and by anticipation and by preparation. We're looking for something. We're longing for something. Just like we talked about in last week's sermon for those who were here in the last bit of the Nicene Creed, there's something that as Christians we're to look for and, and we're to long for that ultimately finds its fulfillment, not here on this earth, but in eternity in the presence of God in a new heavens and, and a new earth. There's, there's something that we're longing for. We know we're not who we're supposed to be. We know we're not who we're going to be. We know that this world is not yet what it should be and what it will be. So there's still a restlessness and a longing and a hope. And, and this is what we bring to the season of Advent, every single one of us. It's a time of looking forward. It's a time of anticipation. It's a time of, of preparation. And we all need our hearts rightly transformed. Every single last one of us in the midst of this life here right now longs for it and, and wants real hope, real, tangible, solid hope, real peace, Real, tangible love and joy. And if we're not careful, if we allow ourselves to just blindly drift through this Christmas season, what Christmas has become in our culture, the, the cultural commercial machine of Christmas, if we just allow, us, allow ourselves to drift through this time, we stand the risk really of being chewed up, chewed up and, and, and spit out and find ourselves on the other side of the holiday not really tasting the hope and the peace and the love and the joy that we come together to celebrate, but finding ourselves in our restlessness and despair and loneliness even. And so what I want for us in this Christmas Advent, in this preparation for Christmas time, I want us as a people to not become casualties of our current cultural Christmas season. I don't want us to drift through it blindly and, and drift through it uh, passively. I want us to actively prepare ourselves for this time. I want us to recognize the hope, to recognize the longing, to recognize the need, and to recognize the place where the real hope, the real peace, and the real joy and the real love are actually found. 
I don't want us to become casualties. I want us to actually prepare. So that's what we're going to actually begin this morning. We're going to start this morning looking at what is real biblical hope. And we're going to do that by looking at Psalm 77. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 77. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm actually going to read the whole psalm. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to read the whole psalm. And then we're going to talk about hope. And then we're going to walk through the psalm. So while you're going there, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time that we have together this morning. Uh, Lord, it is a a privilege uh, to gather together with your people. And I ask this morning that, Lord, through your word, you would do what only you can do, that you would spark and cultivate and begin to grow real, tangible, transforming hope that comes from a, a knowledge and a passionate trust in who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus. Lord, we want to be transformed into his image. We want to make much of you and reflect your glory to a watching world. We don't want to be casualties of a season this year. But we want to go through this season rightly with our eyes and our hearts fixed appropriately on you. We want to be people of real hope. And so we ask this morning, Father, that you would do what only you can do in our hearts for your glory. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 77, I'm going to read it. Then we're going to talk a little bit about how we use the word hope, and then we're going to go through this psalm. And we're going to, when we go through this psalm, you're actually not going to see the word hope. The whole word hope is not actually in Psalm 77, but what I want you to see is what hope looks like when a Christian fights for it. What hope looks like, real, abiding, lasting hope, what it looks like in a real life on this real world. So let's read Psalm 77, talk about hope, and then we'll jump in. Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open, and I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Your, Your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This morning, we're going to talk about real hope, real, biblical, abiding hope. And the first thing that we've got to note and the first thing we've got to acknowledge when we talk about hope is that real, biblical hope is different from the way we ordinarily talk about hope. 
I mean, the ordinary usage of the word hope in our conversation has a different air to it than the biblical use of hope. You see, when we talk about hope in our ordinary conversation, ordinary life, hope is usually mingled with uncertainty. Hope is saying, I, I hope that Robert doesn't preach too long this morning. The reality of it is you're uncertain about that. You don't really know. You know, I'm hoping that something favorable will happen. You don't really know. When we talk about hope in the ordinary use of the term, it's, it's mixed with an uncertainty, an uncertainty. It's almost like saying, you know, I'm not really sure about this. But that's not the way hope is used in the Bible. That's not biblical hope. You know, when the Apostle Peter is, is writing a letter to the church that's going through suffering, that's been spread out throughout the region because of persecution, he says to the church, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is not just wishful thinking. He's not saying, I don't know if this will actually happen, but I, I hope so. so. So get your best intentions forward towards that idea. He's not speaking in uncertainty. Biblical hope is when God has promised something that is going to happen and you put your trust in that promise. Biblical hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it and his promise is grounded in his character. Biblical hope is not laced with an ordinary uncertainty, but biblical hope is grounded in the rock-solid confidence of the character of the person of God. My, My hero, John Piper, He said that real hope is faith in the future tense. It's faith in the future tense. And so when we walk through Psalm 77, you're not going to see the word hope. You're not going to find that word and then be able to define it. What we're going to see is a real person in real life with real struggles fighting for a real hope a real, tangible hope that's grounded in the person and work of Christ. So we're just gonna read through it again, piece by piece, and I want us to see this in action. It's more like a case study this morning. And as we read it, I want you to to map your experience in this life over the psalmists. When we start reading Psalm 77, we skipped one of the most important parts when I read it aloud to you. One of the most important pieces comes before verse one. You'll find right under the title, Psalm 77, this heading. It says, to the choir master, According to Jeduthun, I hope I said that right, a psalm of Asaph. The first thing we notice when we come to Psalm 77 is that this is actually a song. Psalm 77 is a song that's meant to be sung by God's people when they gather together corporately to worship God. And this is one of the most amazing things about the psalms. They're actually songs. They're God's songs. They're what he intends for God's people to sing to him when we gather together to worship him. These songs reflect the full range of experience of God's people in this earth. I mean, the psalms are, and the songs are, are meant to inform and elicit our emotions and our connections. That's what good music and good art and good poetry does. It informs and it inspires the emotions. And God gave us these emotions. We're not all thoughts and all brains and all minds with no heart and with no emotion. Our emotions are massively important to God. He made them and he gave them to us. And the church has always loved the Psalms. The church is always connected with the Psalms because they give voice to our reality in this world. I mean, the Psalms are real. 
The Psalms talk about real life in a real world with real struggles and real people wrestling with real fears and and real doubts and finding real hope and real peace and real love and real joy in who God is. They, they, They map onto our experience here in life. This is why the church has always loved them. See, we're conditioned to think that when God's people gather together, that our tone and our demeanor is meant to be more like a a high school pep rally, where everybody comes in with the expectation that the songs are going to go, and we're going to go, and we're going to shout, and we're going to cheer, that we've never won a game in our entire career as a school. We're going to go out against the number one team in the state, and we're going to beat them. We can get everybody together, and we can just cheer our way into it. And we have this plastic anticipation of what life is supposed to be like for a follower of Christ. And then when plastic people come together to worship God, they make a plastic noise and they don't acknowledge the reality of what they deal with in this life and how God deals directly with the circumstances in the world that they live in. That's not the truth of the scriptures. That's not even the truth of the Psalms or this Psalm. This is a Psalm about a real life and a real struggle, but real hope. Hope and peace and love and joy. They're all the great themes not only of Advent, but of the scriptures and of the Psalms. And they're best understood when they're present with their opposites. When hope is, is present with anxiety and, and hopelessness. When, when joy is, is present with fear. When we see those things together, that's when we can best understand what real hope and real peace and real love and real joy are. And that's what we see in this song. You know, the scriptures are full. We could go to a dozen different passages that talk about hope and talk about the God of hope. But if we're really honest, that some days we just don't feel that way. And it just doesn't look that way. And so in this season of preparation, in this season of getting our hearts ready for what we're going to celebrate and the magnitude of what we're going to celebrate at Christmas, but what we long for for all of eternity, it's best to be honest It's best to be honest with what we deal with, what we struggle with, and and where we find this hope in the midst of it. That's what we see in Psalm 77. So now we can jump back in to verse one. And I want you just to listen to what Asaph is is expressing. You're being brought into the heart of of an inner monologue. Do you have inner monologues? I have inner monologues when I preach. We were talking about this in the office. All the time you're talking to yourself. You're always wrestling with yourself. You're always encouraging yourself or discouraging yourself. There's always an inner monologue going on. And what Asaph is doing is he's bringing us into his inner monologue in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a difficulty. We don't know exactly what the circumstance is that's bringing about this this monologue, this struggle, but he's opening it up for us. He's opening himself up for us. And he's gonna bring us into that struggle right here in the beginning. And as we read it, I just want you to just let it lay over your own experience. Map it over your own life. Does any of it sound familiar to you? Can you connect with what he's saying here in in any way? Listen to what he says. Verse one, Asaph says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Whenever the Bible repeats itself, it's trying to emphasize something. And what Asaph is saying here in the beginning, and you may have experienced it somewhere before in your life, is that there comes a point in time when you're facing a struggle, and it could be anything. Whatever the stress and and circumstance comes upon you, it could could vary. It could be as different as every person in here, but you get to a point at some times in your struggle when when you can't keep silent anymore. You can pray, and I pray a great deal of time silently. A lot of times when I pray, I pray silently. I pray when I'm thinking, I'm walking, I'm driving. Even in my office, when I'm all by myself, I still kind of pray silently. But there are times when the stress comes upon you and you find yourself in a circumstance when you can't be satisfied with that silence anymore and your soul can do nothing else but to cry out, but to open up your voice and cry aloud. And this is what Asaph is saying. 
He's saying he's gotten to this place where he's not satisfied anymore with, with, with prayer. His soul is just exploding out to God. That's why he emphasizes it this way. He says, I'm crying aloud to God. This is the conflict. Verse two, in, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. So we love this. He, he's recognizing his trouble. He's recognizing his circumstance. He's saying he's not gonna run away from God, but he's gonna run to God. And he's gonna run to God with such a persistence that though he reaches out his hand, he's not gonna weary. He's gonna keep it out there. So we, we love this, right? He's, he's doing what we would encourage everybody to do, but look what happens. As he does that, my soul refuses to be comforted. Now, how often will we ever be that honest in here? I'm reaching out, I'm, I'm crying out, I'm praying, but I've gotten to the place that even as I pray and reach out, my soul, it's refusing comfort. It, he's lost comfort. Have you ever gotten to that place? Have you ever experienced that place? Whatever you face, physically, relationally, whatever it is, if you haven't, you, you will at some point. I don't know if you've been there, but he's, he's, he's lost all comfort. When I remember God, he says in verse three, so I'm going to remember God. When I, when I bring him to my mind and I, I set him before me, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I love how the King James translates this. My spirit waxeth faint. As he brings God to the forefront of his mind and in the midst of his circumstance and he thinks upon God, his spirit actually gets weak. He moans. He's lost comfort. He's begun to lose right perspective. He's lost the, the grasp on what's going on. And then the song actually says, Selah, which is an old musical annotation that would mean pause and reflect. Just deal with that. He's gotten to this place where even in his longing, in his praying, in his crying out, in his reaching out, in his thinking about God in the midst of this, he can't find comfort. He doesn't feel like that's even able to comfort him. Verse four, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I can't speak. Have you ever been there? I consider the days of old, the years long ago. So he's saying that I'm now in this place and I'm gonna consider the old days because they weren't all like this. So what he's saying is there was a time that I didn't feel this way. There was a time when whatever is going on around him that's compelling him towards this struggle, that's, that's bringing him into this struggle, it wasn't there. There were good days. There was a better time and a better place. So now maybe hope is there. Maybe hope is back there. If I can just go back there, I can get that hope. I can get that comfort. So he's going to remember the days of, of old. Let me remember my song in the night, verse 6. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So here's, here's the result of that search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased or his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Do you, do you hear what he's saying? I mean, do you hear what, what he's communicating, what he's actually beginning to believe? Will the Lord, Lord spurn me forever and never give me favorable? Will God always reject me? Because I really feel like and really believe at this point God has actually rejected me. Has, will his steadfast love forever cease? I don't feel like he loves me. You know what? And he's beginning to actually believe. Have you ever been there that gotten to such a place where you're going through something and you begin to actually not just feel but believe that God doesn't love you? 
that his promises are at an end, that he's not faithful, that he promised one thing, but you can't trust it. He doesn't keep his word. Have you ever gotten to that place of wrestling, of struggle, of, of sorrow? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Translate that, God has not been gracious to me. This is what he's feeling, what he's asking. I don't feel like God has been gracious and merciful. He's shut up his compassion in anger. He's taken away that grace and he's become fickle. He promised mercy and he promised faithfulness and loving kindness. And he shut it up in his anger. He's waiting for me to do something that he can come down and punish me. He's a fickle God. He, he's angry with me. Have you ever asked those questions? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever gotten to the place of struggle and sorrow that you can connect with what Asaph is saying? He sits back and he recounts the days of long ago and the song that he sang in those days, the days when he didn't feel the way he did and didn't go through what he was going through. And he said, all that brought me was discouragement, not hope, not hope at all. And what I, what I actually loved, and I never noticed this before in Psalm 77, and this is a psalm that I've gone through for a long time, and I've never actually noticed it until this week. His questions... His struggles with God, the way he was interpreting what he was going through in his relationship with God, is a direct corollary to God's self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus 34. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. In Exodus 34, God discloses himself to Moses, and it says this, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Asaph took what he knew to be true about how God had revealed himself and went, looked at his struggle, looked at his sorrow, and he questioned God piece for piece for who God, said, who, for who God said he was. And he's begun to doubt. And he's begun to feel like God has actually rejected him. That God doesn't love him. That God's not grace, gracious and merciful towards him. That God's, in fact, angry with him. And then he said, Selah. Just think on that. Ponder that. Have you ever gotten to that place? Have you ever been to that place in your own struggle, in your own experience in life here on this earth? There's two things that I love as we're reading through this that I love about the scriptures that I love about the Psalms, but that I love about Psalm 77. We say this kind of often around here, but it's just true. The first thing that I love as we look through this and read through this and begin to think about this in our own experience is I, I love the honesty of the scriptures. I absolutely love the honesty of the scriptures. I love the fact that the Bible presents a real struggle, a real wrestling, a real inner conflict. I mean, this is reality for followers of Christ in a fallen world. We will struggle. We will have internal doubt and internal struggle and internal strife. Circumstances will go against us. It does not all fall our way. The Bible doesn't avoid that. It doesn't skip over that. It doesn't leapfrog over the pain to get to the joy and the hope. It comes in the midst of it. Some of you know exactly what Asaph is talking about here. You know what that feels like. I don't know what the circumstance has been in your life that's brought you to that place, but you know what it feels like. You can make sense of this. You know those questions. And you know not only the questions, but you know what it feels like to begin to come to the conclusion. When you ask yourself, maybe, maybe, God, maybe God's not gracious to me any longer. You know what it feels like to actually begin to believe that he's just not gracious, that he just doesn't love you. I've talked with you. You've wrestled. You've been there. But I love the way that the scriptures not only present the struggle, not only present the reality, I love that they don't gloss over it. It's not fake, it's not plastic, it's real. And I love that. 
But I love the way that the scripture is, and especially the Psalms and here in Psalm 77, we see the fight. We see the reality, the present pain, the present circumstance, the present struggle, but we see the response. We see the fight. We see the struggle to cultivate real hope, to see real and abiding hope spring up in the heart, in the midst of real pain and real struggle. They don't, they don't just jump over it. It's not like Monopoly where you pass go and collect $200 and somehow you can pass the pain to get to the hope. That's not what the Bible presents. So here we are, verse 9, and we're pausing, and he's presented this picture, this struggle, this pain, and now we're left with what's he going to do? I mean, what's Asaph going to do? How is he actually going to respond? Is he going to continue on this same line of thinking and throw himself one big, giant, enormous pity party? Is he going to feel sorry for himself and woe is me himself and invite every single one of us into his pity party so that we can feel sorry for him? so that we can begin to join him in his doubt and in his struggle. So I thought about this. I I think we're really good at doing that. I think a lot of us are really good at at throwing pity parties for ourselves. We're really good at recognizing things that go wrong wrong in our life, that things are against us and things aren't for us, and we have these struggles, and we begin to focus on those things and invite other people into those things and begin to throw these pity parties, for, for lack of a better word. Here's the danger of, of pity parties. When your soul begins to focus solely on its own struggle and its own distress, ultimately it'll sound like Asaph, and even in the midst of, even in the midst of remembering who God is, your soul will begin to lose comfort, lose the ability to actually be comforted. Your focus remains so solely on your own pain and your own distress that you get to a place where you refuse to even be comforted. You refuse to even be strengthened or encouraged. And the other thing about pity parties that's just so annoying is that they're so selfish. I don't know if you've ever realized that. They're so selfish. And you want everybody in your party. And everybody needs to be in your pity party. It's all about you. They're so selfish. And when the heart gets stuck there, when this is where the soul goes and the soul begins to rest and the soul begins to stay and it can't even be comforted any longer, but you want everybody in there, what what ends up happening is that pity party will ultimately lead to hopelessness. And this is where Asaph could go. And this is the natural progression here from verse 9 forward. That's not what actually happens. You see, emotional struggle and emotional pain or emotional distress, it's meant to be a warning signal for us. It's meant to be, for lack of a better example, it's meant to be like a fire alarm for our own soul. Fire alarm goes off and it alerts you to a very present, dangerous reality in your life and in your circumstance and situation. And you've got to respond. You've got to respond rightly. There is a right right way to respond to a fire alarm in the presence of a fire that will lead to life. And there is a wrong way to respond, to ignore it, to just act like it's not real, to think that it won't harm you. There's a wrong way to respond to that alarm that ultimately leads to death. And the same is true in our own soul. And this distress and this trouble It's meant to be like that warning system in our own soul. The issue is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? The struggle is real. 
The struggle is very real. The questions are real. How are we going to respond? And is there hope? What Asaph, verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now again, he says, stop. Stop. Think about that. As you think about it and you look back on it, notice the verbs. Notice the activity. Then I said, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He's talking to himself. He's taking this upon himself and he is going to talk to himself. He is going to preach to himself. He is going to be like David and he's going to begin to encourage himself and he's going to preach to himself until it begins to warm his heart. Then I said, I will remember. I will ponder. I will meditate. The real hopeful Christian life requires this type of effort this type of intention, this type of energy, this type of resolve. The hopeful Christian life is not a life of drifting. This is what Martin recognized in his own people when he became the bishop and he instituted this time of awareness and anticipation and preparation. The hopeful Christian life is not a life of drifting, of just drifting to and fro and allowing yourself to be tossed to and fro. That's not the hopeful Christian life. The hopeful Christian life is one of intention. It's one of the cultivation of the soul. The hopeful Christian life is not something that just happens to you. If you woke up this morning and enjoyed 73 degrees in the middle of November, you had nothing to do with that. It just happened to you. The hopeful Christian life is not something that just happens to you. It's the cultivation of the soul. It's the absolute opposite of of passive, passive resignation, of just allowing yourself to drift. So Asaph is not going to fold in on himself. He's not going to allow himself to get to the place where he's totally preoccupied with himself and with his struggles and then bring everybody else into them. He's not going to throw a big giant pity party and invite us all. He's struggling with a very real sense of hopelessness, a very real sense of despair, a very real sense of distance from God. It is very real. But he's not going to allow himself to stay there. He's not going to allow himself to drift through that. And as you look at the intention that he begins to apply to this thing, I want you to notice something that we don't have record of that actually changes. Have you noticed that his circumstance, at least according to his word, hasn't changed? I mean, whatever has gotten him to this place of of, of sorrow and despair and hopelessness, whatever the circumstance is outside of him that's brought him to this place, we have no record of it actually changing. We don't have a record of him saying, okay, everything's better now. Now I can meditate on the Lord and and hope on the Lord and there's real hope there. The outside hasn't changed. The world is not now for Asaph. It's still against him. Whatever has brought him to this place is still there, but his perspective on it and his response to it is different. God has not simply brought relief to the circumstance, but he's beginning to bring transformation to Asaph in the middle of it. And Asaph is doing the work of cultivating hope in his heart. He's being active in the fight for real, tangible, biblical hope. 
and his struggle is typical in the Christian life. I love that the Psalms give voice to it. It's very real as a follower of Christ to feel in certain circumstances that God is not favorable towards you. That maybe his loving kindness has ceased. That maybe his promise isn't reliable. That maybe his compassion has been pulled back. It's very real at times to feel like he's removed his compassion and now he's brought anger upon you. That's real and it's typical. But his Asaph's response needs to be typical of God's people as well. Asaph is not going to allow his soul to drift in the midst of that struggle and pain. He's going to begin to do the work of cultivating his soul. Asaph is going to actually begin to preach to himself. He's going to begin to meditate upon the word of God and remember the word of God until it begins to warm his own soul. And he's going to preach to himself. And one of the things that I think as followers of Christ we've got to get a handle on, we've got to get a grip on, is that sometimes some of the best sermons you will ever hear preached are the ones you're going to have to preach to yourself. It ain't going to be me, it ain't going to be Chris, Raymond, it ain't going to be anybody on iTunes that you download. And God has given some wonderful gifts to people to preach his word passionately and eloquently and clearly. But sometimes some of the most effective and transformational sermons you will ever hear are the ones you're going to have to preach to yourself. And this is what Asaph is going to begin to do. And what's he going to actually preach to himself? I mean, what's he going to ponder on? What's he going to remember? What's he going to meditate on? What's he going to encourage himself with? He's going to preach to himself who God is and what he's done. Where does Asaph get that information from, that knowledge from? He gets it from God's word. Just as he organized his doubt in this song around God's self-disclosure to his people, as that had been taught to him by his own parents and by the people of God, and as the the stories of God that now form our Old Testament scriptures have been taught to him throughout the years, he's going to go back to God's word that was taught to him, that he can read, that he can learn. He's going to say, who is God? Who is he? And he's going to preach to himself and encourage himself with God's word until it begins to transform his heart and the way that he's understanding what he's going through. If we are going to cultivate very real, tangible, biblical hope in the midst of what we deal with right now, we're going to have to do it with God's word. We're going to have to do it with God's word. If you do not read God's word, think on God's word, meditate on God's word, learn to encourage yourself with God's word, preach God's word to yourself, pray God's word as you pray, you will never be in a place to be shaped by God's word. You'll never be in a place to be shaped by it. We won't be like trees planted by streams of water, always yielding fruit in season. When the circumstances come down, never withering. It takes God's word to produce that in us. And when Asaph goes to God's word and he begins to preach to himself and encourage himself, meditate and remember actively, not passively, not just reminding himself of things that he heard, but until it begins to warm his heart, what does he find? Just look at what he records in here. What does he find when he goes there? He finds God's holiness. Your way, O oh God, is, is holy. That's what he was struggling with earlier. But now he's encouraged himself and he's meditated and he's preached to himself and now he can say that, God, your, your, work, your way is holy. He sees God's greatness. What God is great like our God. He sees God's power. 
You are the God who works wonders. You have made your might. You have made known your might among the peoples. I mean, look at this picture. When the waters saw you, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they trembled. Look at the power. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook when he went to God's word and began to preach to himself from God's word. He saw God's wisdom. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And as he began to go to God's word to encourage himself, he found God's tenderness. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And as he went to God's word, to preach to himself about who God is and what he's done. He finds all of God's character and all of God's majesty and all of God's holiness and power and greatness and tenderness summed up in in one great act. What does he preach to himself and encourage himself with? Where do we find God's glory and his character fully on display and most revealed? What act brings us to that? Rasaph, it's the redemption of his people. Verse 15, you, he said, with your arm, you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph preaches to himself the story of God's salvation, his redemption, his rescue of his people from slavery. How God rescued them and redeemed them and brought them to himself and made them his people. As he did this, confidence began to spring up in his heart. Confidence that God had not forsaken him, that God had not removed his mercy from him, that God's graciousness was not shut up in anger, that God is who he said he is, that he has not lied and that his promises are trustworthy. And he did this, he remembered, he meditated, he thought on, he said to himself until he was overwhelmed by it. It wasn't a passing knowledge. Yes, I remember God did this and I'll meditate on this. I'll, I'll read it for a second and then I'll walk away and then I'll remember that God rescued me from my sin through his son Jesus, but it doesn't, doesn't warm my heart. Well, sit on it till it does. Preach to yourself till it does. This is what Asaph was doing. Just as he went night and day, night and day, crying aloud to God and finding no comfort, he preached to himself who God is and what he has done until the comfort and hope that he was longing for was found. This is the normal Christian life, the active pursuit of real hope. And it was hope that was cultivated in Asaph that God would continue to be for him who he had promised he would be, that God would be for him and not against him, and that God would provide for him ultimately the promised Messiah that he and the rest of Israel were looking for, the very fulfillment that we celebrate when we come to Christmas and the birth of Jesus. Real biblical hope. Real biblical hope is a reality for you and I today just as it was for Asaph, as we remind ourselves, remember, and preach to ourselves the gospel of how God has revealed himself to us most clearly and sufficiently through the person and work of his son, Jesus. Just as God defeated Israel's enemies and he rescued them from their slavery and brought them out to new life with him in the land that he has promised, 
as a follower of Christ on this side of the cross, you and I can begin to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves and encourage our souls that God has indeed once and for all defeated our real enemies of Satan and sin and death through his son Jesus. Through his son who though he enjoyed the equality with God, he, Paul said, did not consider that equality as something that he needed to grasp. Instead he humbled himself and he came to this earth and he took on the form of a man, even that of a servant. And he lived his life day in and day out in perfect satisfaction with God, in obedience to God, the life that you and I were created by God to live. And then he laid his life down and sacrificed his life to pay the price for the life that you and I live instead, the sin that you and I have committed. Though he knew no sin and he did not deserve to die, he died the death that you and I deserved. And on that cross, he absorbed and exhausted the just wrath of God for our sin. He suffered that in his body on the cross. Then he suffered death and he was buried. And three days later, as a vindication of his sacrifice for our sin, God raised him from the dead, ultimately triumphing over death itself. So that any man or woman who places their faith in the person and work of Jesus is rescued from the slavery of sin, is adopted by God as a son or a daughter, is forgiven of all sin and receives Jesus' perfect righteousness and is guaranteed in eternity, as we talked about last week, in his presence in a new heavens and a new earth. And what it means is beginning to preach this to yourself and consider this until it warms your heart. It means going to the story of the gospel and the scriptures, going to a place in the scriptures and sitting on it and preaching it to yourself until it changes you. It means going to a place in Luke and, and reading the crucifixion, reading the story and beginning to think on it, beginning to think and, and see tangibly Jesus on the cross between two thieves and to begin to stop and not just read through it but begin to encourage yourself and, and think on the display, think on the wonder of what happened there. Think on the, the magnitude of what you see just in that story. There is a, a dying man who is declared a lifelong thief, accepted and loved and bound for eternity with God. Think about this. You are no better than that thief next to Jesus. And in one moment, a dying man on a cross declared that this man, this man was now accepted and loved by God and bound for an eternity with God. Think about that until it begins to warm you and think upon the grace that swept a lifetime of guilt, a lifetime of guilt and sin away from the presence of God as far as the east is to the west. One simple moment, a grace that made it all gone, a forgiveness that came. Think about the power you see in Jesus just in that one moment that says death has no hold over me and to this thief has no hold over you. Put yourself in his place, in the thief's place, and think about it for a minute. In that moment, he said death has no hold over me and has no hold over you. Here's an authority that decides in a moment who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Just think about it. Begin to encourage yourself with it. Begin to preach it to yourself. There is an immediacy that says what I have just said is gonna happen this very day. No need to earn the forgiveness, no need to earn the grace, no purgatory to go sit in, no penance to do. 
In this moment, that lifetime of guilt has been removed. In this moment, you will be with me for all of eternity. Think on it. Encourage yourself with it. Preach it to yourself so that you can say with Asaph, your way, oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. I love, I love Psalm 77. Instead of ultimately inviting us to this great pity party for what he's going through and what he's suffering and the struggles that he faces in the midst of it, Asaph doesn't invite us there. Instead, he invites us to worship. I love it. He doesn't invite us to join him in his pity, but he calls us together to worship God. He calls us away from ourselves. He calls us out of that kind of self-occupation and preoccupation, and he calls us to a real and living and abiding hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He calls us to real hope that doesn't have an air or a whiff of uncertainty to it. There is no uncertainty in this hope. This is the promise of God. It's real hope that's built on the rock-solid truthfulness and faithfulness of God's person and his work. This is our biblical hope. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm going to pray for us. And, and then as we do every week, we're going to respond to God's word. And the way we're going to do it is by taking just a moment to just reflect. It's going to be silent. So for some of you, it may be kind of awkward, but silence is important. And you're just going to have a moment to reflect. Maybe think on something that you heard. Maybe pray. Maybe if you came with someone, you can pray with that person next to you. And then for those who are followers of Christ, we will respond to God's word by taking communion, remembering Jesus' body uh, broken for us and his blood poured out. And then as God's people, we will sing. We will make much of God, just like Asaph did. We will use our mouths to express our worship towards God in the midst of what we go through because of the hope that we have that's found in who he is and what he has done. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we will respond. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for you, how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you that our hope is, is not uncertain. It's not tossed to and fro on the waves. It's not, it's not grounded on the, the fickleness of people's opinions and people's emotions, but our hope is grounded in the rock-solid faithfulness and truthfulness of who you are. Your very character, your holiness and your greatness grounds our hope in who you are. Help us to have a very real and abiding hope this Christmas season. Lord, I ask that we not become casualties of the season, that we not drift through the season and allow the waves of, of the, the commercialism of the season to just drown our hearts and drown our souls to the place that we don't even know what we're doing and why we're doing it, Lord, but help us to prepare rightly. Help us to prepare rightly for what we celebrate this Christmas season. And Lord, we'd ask that by your Holy Spirit you would you would begin to produce real and abiding hope in our hearts as we would do the work of thinking on you and preaching to ourselves. Give us an intentionality that pursues you. We ask this, Lord, that we would be transformed in the image of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.